What's up, strategic investors? We're here to bring you breaking news regarding cryptocurrency and macroeconomics in a simple way that's easy to understand. This is one of the most volatile periods of history in the last several hundred years. Economics and cryptocurrency has never in history been as important to understand as it is today. We're looking to build a community of some of the brightest minds in all of finance. Asset management is like a game of chess, and we're always looking to stay one move ahead of the competition. Subscribe to our channel to become a part of the most comprehensive upcoming communities in cryptocurrency and economics. So enough with that, let's get to the content you all came here to see. In this video, we're going to be talking about our trade-in balance, the rotation out of fixed income, and U.S. stocks, and how that is going to potentially be a headwind for the U.S. dollar. We just put out a video that does a good job of describing our macro thesis for the next 5 to 10 years. This is the video here, and we will post a link for you so that you can add another layer of understanding to what we're going to be discussing in this video. We will give a quick summary because it adds a lot of value to the concept discussed in this video. So ultimately, over the next 5 to 10 years, we believe the US dollar will be devalued, and this will be a tailwind for a lot of different asset classes because a lot of assets are priced or denominated in US dollars. As seen in Weimar Germany when they were in a similar situation in the early 1900s, there's extreme volatility associated with defaulting on obligations through a devaluation of the currency. War reparations started in 1918 and Weimar Germany didn't see hyperinflation for about five years after the fact. And there was actually a two-year period where the currency actually got stronger against gold. The year and a half after the currency got stronger, it was devalued from 100 Deutschmarks, which was their paper currency, per goldback mark, which was the currency backed by gold. So it was 100 Deutschmarks per goldback mark to 1 trillion Deutschmarks per goldback mark. And this was one of the most extreme cases of hyperinflation of all of history. We believe we are in a time period that is now counter-trend to our thesis, similar to the time period in Weimar, Germany, where their currency got stronger before hyperinflation actually picked up. And we are watching closely as to when we will revert back to an environment more conducive to our central thesis moving forward. One of the things we are watching for is an environment that has a stronger headwind than tailwinds for the US dollar, meaning a more bearish environment for the US dollar. If you've been watching our channel, we've been talking about a lot of tailwinds to the dollar at the moment, but today we're going to be discussing a potential headwind, which will be very important to monitor as things unfold this year. Check out our debt problem video if you want a deeper understanding of this topic, but that should be enough of a refresher to move forward with the concept in this video. So with that, let's dig into the details. So I thought it would be appropriate to start this video off by talking about this interview with CNBC and Stanley Druckenmiller. And this was back in May of 2021. So this video is a little bit dated, but at the same time, this point of the thesis that he's making is pretty slow moving. And we're getting to a point in time where it's becoming a lot more relevant and it's very interesting to watch how this is going to play out. 
I'm going to start the video around the five minute mark because that's when he starts talking about the currency and what it means for the dollar. But this whole interview is outstanding and it's worth watching. So if you guys have time, this would be another video to come check out just to get a deeper understanding of the topic that we're going to be discussing. So with that, let's watch this five minutes really quick. And then we have a whole bunch of other topics that we're going to go over regarding what he's talking about but this is going to be a great place to start so let's get started with this video let's talk about the dollar and 85 percent of the transactions are still done in the dollar you pointed out in a recent speech that you think we've crossed the rubicon are you comfortable saying with what you said there that 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 for the first time in your career you think we lose reserve status at some point I'm comfortable with it. That's my central case. As you know, Joe, I can change my mind. But yeah, um, you said that to some extent, the Fed is enabling the fiscal transfers. It's not to some extent. They couldn't be doing this without the Fed. The Fed is monetizing their activity. I mentioned all the QE after vaccine confirmation and retail sales. We've had $850 billion of direct all right, I just wanted to stop it really quick and point out what he just mentioned, that none of this would be possible if it wasn't for the support of the Federal Reserve and monetizing the debt. So basically what he's getting at is real rates need to be negative, and for real rates to be negative, you have to have inflation be higher than the yield on the debt. So as the Fed goes in and does its QE and buys up a bunch of the fixed income market, that actually suppresses and reduces the yields. So as we mentioned in our introduction for this video, the goal is to devalue the dollar enough to reduce our debt to GDP to make it easier to pay back debt because the currency is devalued. So that's what he's getting at when he says that all of this is possible because the Fed is supporting it. And keep in mind that this was May of 2021, so this was before the Fed got super hawkish. At the current moment, the Fed is talking about tapering, which they've already started and they've picked up pace and they're actually trying to be done by March, which is just a couple weeks away. So that's already in process. They're talking about raising interest rates after they're done with tapering and they're talking about unloading their balance sheet at some point. So that is about as unsupportive as you can possibly be at the moment. So just keep in mind that some of this thesis is predicated on the fact that the Fed is out there monetizing our debt or was out there monetizing our debt. So just wanted to point that out before we get too far into his thesis. You said that to some extent, the Fed is enabling the fiscal transfers. It's not to some extent, they couldn't be doing this without the Fed. The Fed is monetizing their activity. I mentioned all the QE after vaccine confirmation and retail sales. We've had 850 billion of direct transfers, 575 billion of them came after retail sales were above trend, 575 of the 850 billion. I'm old enough to remember the, the bond market vigilantes. I used to be one of them. Without the Fed buying, I don't know what the exact number is. I think it's 60% of all the debt issued. The, the bond markets would be totally rejecting this. So they are enabling. So I wanted to pause it one more time and just point out that what he's talking about right now actually ties into a good concept regarding why we're holding our counter trend thesis that we hold at the moment. So with the Fed buying such a high percentage of the debt, 
That means as they taper, that alone is actually going to be a big factor when it comes to the supply and demand of the treasury market. And then if you pair that with the fact that the exemptions to the supplementary leverage ratio expired last year in the beginning of April, that means that all of the depository institutions, such as banks, have such a high leverage exposure now that that has expired that they really can't add anything more to their balance sheet. So they're not going to be able to do anything regarding adding demand to the treasury market. And this is actually a big reason why we hold our thesis at the moment that we do that is actually counter to our long-term thesis. And it's because we see a pretty strong supply and demand imbalance building up in the fixed income markets at the moment. And that's going to put a lot of pressure and it's going to be a tailwind for yields going forward in the near future until something changes. So basically what we think is that now that the Fed is tapering and they're not providing the liquidity to the bond market that they have been over the last year or two, the spike in yields that we're seeing is actually the bond market rejecting the current economic environment that we find ourselves in today. So you guys might notice a change in audio regarding the rest of this video. We had some technical difficulties and I'm not getting the audio in my headphones anymore. So I'm gonna just play it on my laptop and put the speaker next to my laptop. So it's not going to be all that different, but it might sound a little bit different. So I just wanted to let you guys know what happened. You said that to some extent, the Fed is enabling the fiscal transfers. It's not to some extent. They couldn't be doing this without the Fed. The Fed is monetizing their activity. I mentioned all the QE after vaccine confirmation and retail sales. We've had 850 billion of direct transfers, 575 billion of them came after retail sales were above trend, 575 of the 850 billion. I'm old enough to remember the, the bond market vigilantes. I used to be one of them. Without the Fed buying, I don't know what the exact number is, I think it's 60% of all the debt issued, that the bond markets would be totally rejecting this. So. They are enabling this massive expansion in fiscal policy. And the problem is, if you end up getting inflation, and frankly, even if you don't, the debt is going to be so big. You remember I did my entitlement talks eight or nine years ago. That's all happened except for one thing, the interest rate level. So we're right now in the crux of when the demographic, when the baby boomers accelerate in terms of of getting Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, that stuff. Right as we're doing that, we just put six trillion of new debt on. Again, all enabled by the Fed. These guys could not be doing it. Bond rates would go to a prohibitive level. So my my issue here is, in the future, um, as we go forward. So I just wanted to point out, he was talking about entitlement spending, and we spent a good portion of that video that I was talking about at the beginning of this video, talking about that concept with the entitlement spending. And just wanted to mention one more time, the video is called The Government Debt Problem Explained. So if you guys want to check that out, it would add a whole nother layer of understanding to this concept. And this is an extremely important conversation to be monitoring going forward over the next several years at least. 
So I think it would be well worth your time to go check that video out also, even though it's a little bit longer. I think it's about an hour long. It does a really good job of just diving into all the different aspects of the problem that he's talking about right now. But the reason why the interest on debt would be a problem is because we are spending a lot more than we're bringing in. So our total revenue is just over $4 billion, but our total expenses is over $7 trillion. So we have almost double the expenses than we have revenue. So as I mentioned, our revenue is about $4 billion a year. Just our social security spending alone with the entitlement spending is almost $3 trillion. And then you have Medicare and healthcare expenses, which is, I believe, about $1.5 trillion, give or take a little bit. But you can see just those two aspects are more than the revenue that we're bringing in. So if you have an increase in the discount rate on the debt, we're not bringing in enough money to offset that. So that's all going to have to be paid for with new debt, which is something that will create a exponential logarithmic problem that kind of feeds on itself and becomes worse over time. So just wanted to point that out really quick before we move on. Right as we're doing that, we just put $6 trillion of new debt on. Again, all enabled by the Fed. These guys cannot be doing it. Bond rates would go to a prohibitive level. So my, my issue here is, in the future, um, as we go forward, if you look at, do you have chart five up there? Let's get it. I think we can do it. Uh, which one? Uh, it's federal spending, Social Security and major health care programs. Federal spending is a percent of GDP. This, this is, is the CBO. This is not me, okay? And they're saying if 10 years go to 4.9%, which is their normalized projection, the interest expense alone will be close to 30% of GDP every year. That's basically what we just spent on the COVID emergency in the last year. There is no way we can afford to have 30% so I just wanted to stop it and point out that he's talking about if the interest gets up to over 4% on the treasuries, but we have a chart over here and we've been doing technical analysis on the yields for the two year and the 10 year, but um, up around just under 3% on the two year, 10 year curve, you'd actually get a yield curve inversion theoretically. So I think problems will start considerably before that 4% level. So that honestly sounds pretty optimistic to me. But nonetheless, if you think about it, inflation is up over 7%. So if you want a positive real return on your fixed income investments, you'd have to have a yield that pays higher than inflation. So just to get the rates back positive rather than negative, you'd have to have a yield on these treasuries that's paying upwards of 7 or 8%. Currently, we have the lowest real rate of return on treasuries in all of history, and that goes back, dating back to the early 1900s from the data that we've looked at in previous videos. So I just wanted to point out really quick that it's my thesis that these yields will actually become a problem before the 4% mark, which he's talking about. 
we can afford to have 30% of all government outlays be, be toward interest expense. So what will happen is the Fed will have to monetize that. When they monetize it, um, I believe it'll have horrible implications for the dollar. And that's why I said in that speech, yes, that I think it's more likely than not within 15 years we lose reserve currency status. All right, so I just wanted to pause it one more time really quickly and just tie this back to our thesis that we've been talking about on this channel. So what he's talking about, I completely agree with on a long-term perspective, and that is actually my base case thesis for the next five to 10 years. But like he was saying, this requires monetization of the debt to actually work. And as we've seen from what the Federal Reserve has been doing over the last several months, they are not willing to participate in the monetization of debt any longer. So what he's talking about with the yields being such a threat to the economy if they go so much higher, that is actually more of a probability now that the Fed is becoming more hawkish and they are reducing liquidity to the treasury market and fixed income market as an aggregate. And the government let the SLR exemptions expire so there's nothing that depository institutions can do to help the situation. So while I agree with his thesis long-term going forward, I also agree with what he's saying could be a threat to his thesis with the yields and the lack of monetization of the government debt. And that is actually one of the major reasons why I believe we are counter-trend to my overall thesis over the next five to 10 years. So I believe that we are in a pretty bearish environment at the moment, despite being in a probably more long-term bullish environment for assets. And this is why we're trying to monitor this concept that he's gonna be talking about, because we're trying to navigate these markets very efficiently. And we're trying to find how the economy is gonna try to revert back to where it needs to be. And that's gonna be monetizing the government debt and devaluing the currency and inflating the debt away. We've mentioned that 51 out of 52 governments that have found themselves in this situation throughout recorded history have defaulted on their obligations through devaluation of their currency rather than austerity to their people. So the simple way of saying that would be that 51 out of 52 governments throughout history have resulted to inflation rather than deflation in this circumstance. So while the Fed is pretty hawkish at the moment, and we believe them, and we believe that the economy is probably going to get worse before it gets better, we also believe that this is not something that they can sustain for a long period of time. And we are looking for how they are gonna go about getting back to their overall goal of trying to inflate the debt away. And this is why we're doing this video, is because this is a headwind to the dollar, what he's gonna be talking about at the end of this video. And that could be a counter momentum to the tailwinds that we've been talking about in previous videos. And that's why I said in that speech, yes, that I think it's more likely than not within 15 years we lose reserve currency status.
Can we go to um, the chart on the dollar specifically? Because I think this is really important. Last spring, in the midst of an equity market meltdown, and I've been trading for 40 years and I've never seen anything like this, right in the middle of an equity market meltdown, the bond market went down 18 points one day. And everybody thought it was macro traders like me and others that were rejecting the, the implications of the CARES Act. The Fed did a deep dive, and by hindsight, foreigners sold a trillion dollars, a trillion um, of treasuries overnight as we were proposing the CARES Act. They've continued to sell treasuries ever since then. Why is that important? Because for 20 years, treasuries have been the go-to asset of foreigners to hedge global portfolios with. In every case, whenever you had a problem in the equity market or in the world economy, they fled to treasuries and they fled to the dollar. Last spring, that was violated. So since then, they've continued to sell treasuries. So what we've gone from is for 20 years, an average flow of 500 billion a year into treasuries from an outflow out of treasuries. Uh, so when you have a $700 billion current account deficit, our estimate for the year, you need capital to flow in to offset that. If you just erase 500 billion inflow and turn it into an outflow, you see the pressure will put all right, I wanted to pause it there again because that is one of the most important sentences that he said throughout this whole video. So what he's referring to is our trade deficit. So every country has a trade balance which monitors your exports versus imports. So if you export more than you import, you have a trade surplus because you're selling more than you're buying. So you have a surplus. But if you import more than you export, you have a deficit because you're buying more than you're producing. So with the United States, we have one of the large, or by far, not just one of the largest, by far the largest trade deficit in all of the world. We'll take a look at that in upcoming web pages after we're done with this video. But basically why that's important is you have, what he mentioned was 500 billion, but at the moment, it is around a trillion. So the trade deficit is really accelerating. So you have about a trillion dollars a year that are leaving the country to go buy and import goods and services from outside of the United States. And as we mentioned before, we're spending all of our revenue on entitlements such as social security and free healthcare. So the way that we're funding the imports in our trade deficit is by printing the difference. And it's not necessarily printing, it's by issuing new debt. But there's a factor of this equation that offsets the outflow of dollars from the United States. And that's when we buy goods and services from foreigners, throughout history, their go-to has been to take those dollars and buy treasuries. So they get the dollars and then they come back and buy treasuries. So what they're doing is giving money to the government to issue more debt. But that stopped after 2008. It didn't stop completely, but it reversed direction and it has become an outflow rather than inflow. So when the government issues debt, they do so in the form of a treasury. 
So they go sell a treasury for dollars. And a treasury is just a obligation to pay back the principal with interest in the future. So a treasury is pretty much a deferred dollar with interest. So now that foreigners aren't funding the United States government's debt, so our budget deficit, that really intensifies the magnitude of the problem of our trade deficit. And this is often why you hear people refer to our twin deficits being such a problem. But there's another aspect of this perspective that needs to be looked at really quick. And that's if they're not buying treasuries, what are they doing with the money? Because as we devalue the dollar, it wouldn't necessarily be smart to be sitting on a large foreign exchange reserve of US dollars. So it's likely that these foreigners are looking for different places to go and put their US dollars to work. And that's what he's gonna be talking about for the rest of the video. And this is an aspect that is also very interesting to monitor going forward. So I just wanted to point out really quick before we finish the rest of the video that because foreigners aren't funneling their money back into treasuries, that means that there's not as much liquidity in the market. And they're actually onloading more treasuries than they're buying in aggregate. And that's why he says that we have an outflow. And considering that they've been the biggest buyer of treasuries over the last, say, at least several decades, this really raises the question as to who's going to provide liquidity to the treasury market. Because, as we mentioned, the Fed is also tapering their asset purchases. So really the only other major buyer of treasuries are retirement funds, such as pension funds. So what this is ultimately doing is putting the United States government debt problem and the burden of that on the shoulders of the American people and anyone that has a retirement account, such as, say, a 401k. So that wasn't quite as relevant and maybe a little bit of a rant, but it's also a very interesting piece of information that is important to understand and just be aware of. So I thought it'd be worth taking a couple seconds just to mention it, but let's get back to the video. So when you have a $700 billion current account deficit, our estimate for the year, you need capital to flow in to offset that. If you just erase 500 billion inflow and turn it into an outflow, you see the pressure will put on the dollar. A reasonable person might ask, well, if that's true, why did the dollar not go down from March to July? Very simple. Um, who is the biggest beneficiary of COVID? Obviously, the massive digital transformation companies, Google, Microsoft, not so massive, but Zoom, those kind of names. What country dominated in terms of those names? The United States of America. So the $500 billion out. So I just wanted to pause it really quick and point out that he meant that very literally, and it is the big tech companies that benefited. If you compare a chart of the FANG stocks with the Russell 2000, which is small caps, you can see that the small caps have relatively underperformed the majority of the last year or two, whereas the FANG stocks have just completely gone crazy to the upside. So these mega cap tech stocks have become the new store of value. Because if you think about it, treasuries are being sold. And that would be fine if the yields went up, but the yields are being suppressed. So just holding a treasury for say, 
you're getting a real rate of return of negative 5%. So you're guaranteeing yourself a big loss by purchasing treasuries. After the pandemic, the yield on two years and 10 years and everything dropped down to about a quarter percent. So you were actually getting probably a higher yield with growth potential by investing in Microsoft. So you're buying an asset that isn't being sold off like the treasury market, and you're actually getting a yield, which would be the dividend that Microsoft pays, that is actually probably higher than the yield you'd be getting by purchasing a treasury. And as he mentioned, you're investing in a company, a business, that is benefiting from the COVID crisis that potentially has room to grow and get you price appreciation profits also. So I think this actually played a big role in why foreigners ended up selling a trillion dollars worth of treasuries after the CARES Act and ended up rotating into the mega cap tech stocks, these FANG stocks. So the $500 billion outflow out of bonds was offset by a massive inflow from, from world central banks, from sovereign wealth funds into our equity market. Um, by July, they had become, that had become pretty much in the market. The relative prices had gone up. And frankly, the vaccine profile was starting to look better. So that is when the dollar peaked as that offset started to diminish. And as you know, Joe, the vaccine. I just wanted to point out really quick that he's talking about the rotation into tech stocks from treasuries, from foreigners. But if you think about it, with the current stance from the Federal Reserve and how hawkish they are and how they're going to be tapering their security purchases and potentially even unloading their balance sheet, there is a strong possibility and probability that there's going to be a supply-demand imbalance in the treasury market that is going to send yields quite a bit higher. And as yields go higher, that actually hurts tech companies quite a bit. So as the Fed becomes more hawkish, that's actually going to incentivize a rotation out of tech stocks. And a rotation out of tech stocks would be an outflow from the United States. So as that happens, the question going forward is going to be, what do these foreigners do with the money? Because as we've seen after they sold all of our treasuries, they funneled it back into the United States, just into tech stocks instead of our government debt. So as the foreigners buy these tech stocks, that increases the price of these stocks and increases the net worth of Americans. So anyone that holds any of these stocks can go out and sell their shares and they have more money because foreigners came in and bought the stocks. It also allows businesses to fund more efficiently. So if we do see a rotation out of these tech stocks, that's gonna be an outflow from the United States and that could be the headwind for the US dollar. But it really depends on what these foreigners decide to do with the money because it's very unlikely that they keep the majority of it just sitting in a savings account. Maybe the discount rate on their debt is going up and it's going to be used to pay off their debt because the yields on emerging market bonds denominated in U.S. dollars is actually going up also. 
So that's going to be the question to monitor going forward. But as of right now, we can see that the economic environment that we find ourselves in today incentivizes a rotation out of tech stocks. So that's why I wanted to bring up this video at the moment, because I think it's very relevant to be paying attention to. And as you know, Joe, the vaccine tends to cause a rotation out of growth stocks into value stocks. Our big advantage over here are the growth stocks. So that's why I think the pressure on the dollar is going to continue. Shepard Smith here. Thanks for watching CNBC on YouTube. So just a quick summary of the video, basically what his thesis was saying was that as we get a rotation out of these tech stocks, that's going to be a outflow from the United States, and that's going to put a pressure downwards on the U.S. dollar. But as we mentioned before, a lot of this thesis was predicated on the fact that the Federal Reserve was going out and monetizing the government debt. So I'm sure there's aspects of his thesis that he's probably switched around since he put out this interview, but the major concept that the rotation of tech stocks would be a headwind for the dollar still remains true, or a potential headwind for the dollar. So because we think this is such an important thing to be paying attention to and monitoring over the near term, we're really going to dig deeper into this topic and look at quite a bit of data regarding it. And then we're going to try to answer that question that we had earlier, where these foreigners might be looking to put their money now that they've rotated out of tech stocks. So with that, let's dig into the deeper details. All right, so this chart is the U.S. goods and services trade balance from 1960 to 2016. And as he was talking about in the video, we have a pretty large trade deficit. So you can see that this is the zero line. So anything above it would be a surplus and anything below it would be a deficit. So you can see that this was a problem that really started in the 70s and has been picking up deltas and momentum to the downwards in recent history. And this chart actually stops about midway through the 2010 decade. And I do have some more recent data we can look at. Keep in mind that this chart shows about 500 billion. And I believe that was the data he was referring to in his video or his interview also that we just watched. So if we come over here, we can see that this was 2019. So just several years ago, our trade deficit was about $500 billion. And you can see that that is easily the largest trade deficit in the whole world. The second place is the United Kingdom, and their trade deficit is just over $100 billion. And then third place is Kenya, which is just over 50 billion. So we're about 10x higher than the third place trade deficit. But this was from 2019, and there's been a lot of craziness in the economy over the last couple of years. So let's see what the last couple of years have done to our trade deficit as we have more recent data. All right, so you can see here we have more recent data. This is gonna be from 2020. At the end of 2020, our trade balance was almost a trillion dollars. So just from 2019 to 2020, we doubled our trade deficit. And I wanted to take a look at this really quick just to show you the effect of this over all of history. As the money gets transferred overseas, there has been a lot of it that's accumulated and it's called the Euro dollar market. So by the end of the 1970s, 385 billion euro dollars were booked offshore. 
These deposits were lent on as a U.S. dollar loans to businesses in other countries where interest rates on loans were perhaps much higher in the local currency and where businesses were exporting to the United States and being paid in dollars, thereby avoiding foreign exchange risks on their loans. So as we export dollars to the rest of the world, these dollars are booked offshore and these depository institutions are actually lending out on a fractional reserve system with these U.S. dollars. Because this is overseas, it's unregulated by U.S. authorities for the most part. So they have risk measures in place such as trying to lend to businesses that are being paid in U.S. dollars. So they have dollars coming in to pay off their dollar denominated debts. But there's a lot of people out there that know these markets pretty well, the euro dollar market, and they think that there was a lot of pretty irresponsible action that happened in the 70s and 80s regarding these loans. And there's really no way of knowing how big the euro dollar market is because it's unregulated and we really don't know too much about it. But for however much euro dollars that are theoretically booked offshore through our trade deficit, they're being lent on in a fractional reserve system, so there's probably quite a bit more than we actually theorize. So you have a huge market for U.S. dollars outside the United States, and our trade deficit plays into this. So since the euro-dollar market is not run by any government agency, its growth is hard to estimate. So this actually plays into the demand for dollars, because there are loans being created outside the United States for U.S. dollars, and they're denominated with U.S. dollars. So these loans need to be paid back with U.S. dollars. So there's demand for U.S. dollars outside the United States. And that's what helps make the U.S. dollar so strong. And one of the factors that plays into our reserve currency status and why the U.S. dollar is the pristine currency of the world. And you can see down here, since the euro dollar market is not run by any government agency, its growth is hard to estimate. However, the euro-dollar market is by a wide margin the largest source of global finance. In 1997, nearly 90% of all international loans were made this way. In December 1985, the euro-dollar market was estimated by JP Morgan Bank to have a net size of 1.668 trillion. So that was 1985. By 2016, the euro-dollar market size was estimated at around $13.83 trillion. And as we mentioned, there was a lot of shady stuff going on because it's not regulated by any government agencies. There's a lot of people that have good reason to believe that there were a lot of banks back in the 70s and 80s that were actually lending out dollars that they didn't even have. So there was a lot of U.S. dollars that were actually created into existence or I guess quote-unquote U.S. dollars that were created into existence without actually having the U.S. dollars to loan out in the first place. So that's just another factor that makes it really hard to estimate what's going on overseas in the euro-dollar market. So as the yield on these emerging market bonds that are denominated in U.S. dollars goes up, that creates a demand for dollars overseas in the euro-dollar market. But foreigners own a lot of U.S.-denominated assets, such as the tech stocks that Stanley Druckenmiller was talking about in that interview. So they can easily sell these assets to get the U.S. dollars to pay off these U.S.-denominated debts that they have. 
And if they have a good reason to rotate out of tech stocks anyway with the yields on debt rising, that would theoretically provide the rest of the world with a lot of liquidity of US dollars available to actually cover the increase on the yields for their debt. And foreigners own so much of US assets, if they wanted to, they could easily sell enough US assets to create such an outflow of US dollars into the rest of the world that it would really increase the size of the US dollar or the Euro dollar market. And therefore, it would actually reduce the demand for dollars worldwide. And considering since 1997 or at least several decades ago, the Euro dollar market has been the largest source of global finance. That's where a lot of this demand for the US dollar is actually coming from. And the Euro dollar market is actually bigger than the domestic market for US dollars here within the United States. So if these foreigners decide to rotate out of United States mega cap tech stocks and decide to try to rebalance their portfolios and other assets, that would bring a lot of dollars from the United States back overseas into the euro dollar market and reduce demand for the dollar and be a headwind for the dollar going forward. The only thing is it's hard to gauge the magnitude of this because there's just so little known about the euro dollar market. So it's just something that you really have to monitor really closely going forward and just keep an eye on and pay attention to new developments as they happen. So I just wanted to point that out really quick. Let's move to the next web page. So you can see here, this is titled A Secret Path Revealed That Allows Wealthy Chinese to Transfer Billions Overseas by Buying Pricey Property in Vancouver, New York, and Sydney. So as we buy these goods from China, they take that money and they reinvest it into assets. And one of the favorite assets for these Chinese investors to dedicate their money to, allocate their money to, is pricey property. Because it's a way to circumvent regulations in China. So allegations by Chinese TV of money laundering at the Bank of China has uncovered a little-known program that allows wealthy citizens to sidestep the $50,000 currency cap and pump billions into pricey real estate overseas. So China doesn't want a whole bunch of money leaving the country. So they only allow you to take, I believe $50,000 at the time of this blog, which was 2014. So it's pretty dated. So I don't think this number is probably accurate anymore, but there is a currency cap as to how much money you can actually take outside the country in China. But they want their citizens to be able to invest outside of the country and start picking up assets throughout the world. So they allow their uh, citizens to go out and buy real estate. So some of these homes in Vancouver, New York, and Sydney are extremely pricey. So instead of taking $50,000 outside of the country, you can go buy a little shack house, like a one-bedroom, one-bathroom in Vancouver, for $1.5 million and effectively get that money out of China and be able to use it outside of China. So let's say you ever wanted to leave China and flee China because something happened over there that you didn't agree with. At that point, you own property throughout the world. So once you leave China, they'll let you leave with $50,000. So you can go move somewhere with $50,000 and then go sell your property, your little one bedroom, one bath for $2 million in Vancouver, Canada. And that's a way to get a lot more money outside of the country. 
So there's a lot of different reasons for deploying money outside of the country that you live in. And that's why we see a lot of foreign direct investment, which we will look at going forward. So to tie it back to the concept that we were talking about in this video and regarding the Stanley Druckenmiller uh, interview that we just watched, let's look at the equity positions of foreigners. So you can see that this blog, the guy is Theo Burke. It was October 20th of 2020, and it's titled, Who Owns U.S. Stocks? and Foreigners and the Rich Americans. So our new analysis shows that foreign investors owned about 40% of U.S. corporate equity in 2019, up substantially over the last few decades. So that's 40% in 2019. And you can see from our trade deficit data that we looked at, the trade deficit doubled from 2019 to 2020. So that means that foreigners have a lot more money to deploy into foreign assets and foreign direct investments. So while foreign investors owned about 40% of U.S. corporate equities in 2019, the chances are that's a lot higher now in 2022 because you also had the rotation out of treasuries into U.S. mega cap tech stocks. So I actually wouldn't be surprised if it's considerably higher than 40% in 2022. So if foreigners decide to rotate out of U.S. mega cap tech stocks, this could theoretically bring a lot of U.S. dollars outside the United States overseas. And that's what Stanley Drunkenmiller is talking about with the outflows from the United States being such a problem, at least when it comes to the strength of the U.S. dollar. So let's take a look over here. And this article is a little bit dated. This one, it's titled, How Much of America Do Foreigners Really Own? And it was published in 2016. So it's a little bit older than that last one we just looked at. So the numbers are probably quite a, quite a bit higher than what it suggests in this article. As you can see down here, it says that 15% of American stocks are owned by foreigners. But that last article we looked at said 40%, and that was 2019. And chances are it's quite a bit more than 40% at the moment. So I would guess that these numbers are different, but it's just a good example to show you a little bit more of a deeper breakdown as to what foreigners like to buy. So of all U.S. assets, foreigners own the largest share of outstanding treasury securities. According to the latest available data, foreigners own 48% of all treasury debt, although it's still high. The Wells Fargo economists note that it's down from 60% in 2008. So it dropped about 12% from 2008 to 2016 when this article was written. And honestly, it's probably dropped a lot more since 2016. As Drunken Miller mentioned, there was a rotation of $1 trillion from U.S. Treasuries after the CARES Act was announced. So the number is probably quite a bit lower, but at the same time, you can see that Foreigners play a big role in funding our debt. So without foreigners there to fund our debt, and without the Federal Reserve to provide liquidity, as we mentioned before, that's going to put a lot of the obligation on the American people to fund the debt. And as we mentioned, anyone that owns a treasury with negative yields where they're at, they're at negative 5%, you're guaranteeing yourself a loss of 5% in purchasing power by participating in purchasing treasuries. As long as the yields are suppressed to the level they are today and inflation remains as high as it is today. 
So now that foreigners are reducing their purchases and the Federal Reserve is reducing their purchases, that means that the obligation and the burden of the United States debt problem is being put on the shoulders of American retirement accounts. I find that to be very problematic, but I won't talk too much about that at the moment. Let's move down here. Foreign ownership of other assets is far less pervasive. Foreigners own about 25% of outstanding corporate bonds, 15% of American stocks, and 12% of agency securities. So you can see that basically the moral of the story over the last five years has been a rotation out of treasuries into other assets. And this really comes down to the fact that throughout history, 51 out of 52 governments that have found themselves in this problem have had to default on their obligations through devaluation of their currency and inflating the debt away. So this is why foreigners are more reluctant to participate in funding our debt and buying our treasuries. So as you can see, this was May 15th of 2020, and this was after the CARES Act, as he was talking about. Foreign investors sold a record amount of U.S. Treasury bonds and notes for the month of March, according to the Treasury Department data on Friday, as the coronavirus pandemic caused a dislocation in the market that saw liquidity all but dry up. On a transaction basis, foreigners sold $300 billion in treasuries in March, a record high compared with foreign buying of $4.88 billion in February. And you can see here that this problem really escalated after the pandemic, but the trend has been going ever since the great financial crisis. So it really looks like the great financial crisis was the point in history where everyone realized that this debt problem was becoming very unsustainable. And gradually over the next decade, foreigners had begun selling a bunch of treasuries. And then in 2020, it had the big sell-off that started. So you went from foreigners owning about 60% of the treasury market down to about 30% of the treasury market. So within the last 10 years, you already lost about half of the market share. And this problem is increasing at a rapid rate. So within the next 10 years, you could theoretically see a larger than 50% move to the downside if foreigners are more incentivized to sell their treasury holdings. So 50% from here, using 30 for easy math, would put us down around 15. But that would be a 50% move. And as we can see, the delta on this move is picking up. So it could theoretically even go quite a bit further down. This also plays into our thesis that we're going to have a supply-demand imbalance for the treasury market and fixed income in general. But we're going to get to a point where the market becomes illiquid, as was quoted in this last article that we looked at. And that's why the Federal Reserve had to come in and provide liquidity to the treasury market originally in 2020. So if the market became illiquid then, I don't see a reason why it won't become illiquid again. And this is why I think that things are still likely to get worse before they get better. And you can see here that this chart is the ownership breakdown of the U.S. equity market as of March 31st of 2020. So this chart ends right about when the market was crashing pretty bad in 2020 after the pandemic. So we don't get a lot of data after that. But as you can see from 2008 right here, there was a big pickup in the increase in the amount of foreign investment 
in the corporate equity market, so stocks. So as foreigners were rotating out of treasuries, they were buying stocks along the way. And although we don't have data after the pandemic, I believe that this chart would actually show that the foreign investment in corporate equity has actually gone up quite a bit because we had foreigners rotate a trillion dollars from treasuries into tech stocks. So as you can see from this chart, this is the Invesco QQQ trust price, which is the purple line. And the orange line is gonna be the 10-year treasury rate. So as the discount rate rises on these 10-year treasuries, that actually is a incentive to rotate out of tech stocks. And you can see the comparison right here. So originally I only highlighted this, but now that I think about it, it would be a good thing just to read through this just because it is pretty interesting and has a lot of value when it comes to basic concepts regarding this. So let's just read through this really quick. When interest rates rise, tech stocks fall. When interest rates fall, tech stocks rise. And they're referring to the discount rate on the 10-year treasury when they're talking about interest rates. Thursday was a prime example. The 10-year yield rose and the NASDAQ 100 got crushed, falling nearly 3%. This relationship makes sense in theory. The value of any financial asset is its future cash flows discounted at the prevailing rate of interest. Growth stocks have higher expected future earnings. When interest rates are falling, this makes those future earnings worth more to investors right now. When the hurdle rate is low, growth comes at a premium. They're almost like a zero coupon bond. Value stocks, on the other hand, have more predictable cash flows now as opposed to promised cash flows in the future. And it's possible those cash flows will even fall in the future. Investors tend to be more comfortable holding these stocks when the discount rate is higher because the hurdle rate for investment is higher. The problem with financial theory is it doesn't always work in practice. For example, the current correlation between the NASDAQ 100 and 10-year treasury yield is negative 0.9. That is a strong negative relationship, meaning when one value rises, the other tends to fall and vice versa. All right, so now that we understand the concept a little bit better, let's come over here and take a look at the yields on US two-year government bonds. And as you can see from this chart, the yields on the two-year have been absolutely screaming higher since about September of last year, or even a little bit before that. But they've really picked up Delta since September of 2021. Since September of 2021, they've went from 0.21% all the way up to a recent high of about 1.6%. So as yields rise, that tends to be bad for tech stocks and growth stocks and risk assets in general. But another factor that plays into it is the speed of the move. So it's bad to have them move higher for risk assets, but it's also even worse to have them move higher at a really fast pace. Because the problem with this at a fundamental level is that it requires more money to pay the yield on the debt. So theoretically, the faster the discount rate goes up, the faster you have to come up with more money to pay that yield. And that's why this is so problematic. And we mentioned earlier during the Drunken Miller interview that we would be looking at this chart. 
And he mentioned that he believes that at the 4% level, or just over 4%, is when things could get really sticky with the problem that we find ourselves in today. But with this chart, this line up here represents the most common occurrence of a yield curve inversion throughout history, dating all the way back to the 80s. So the most relative yield curve to be paying attention to is the two-year versus 10-year. And this is the two-year right here. So as we get up around this line, you should see this rate get higher than the 10-year, which would mean that you are able to make more money loaning out your money for two years rather than 10 years, which doesn't make a lot of sense. And historically, after we've got a yield curve inversion, and the yield curve inversion has lasted for at least one month, that's when the Fed likes to come in and reverse policy and reconsider what they're doing. This is what happened in 2019 with the repo market crisis. This is when the Fed decided to pivot from raising interest rates and become very dovish again. So this is something that I'm specifically watching for, is a move in yields up to about this level. And as you can see from this chart, we're actually moving pretty quick and we should get there within the next couple months at this rate. So we've seen that yields are going up quite a bit faster and they're going up quite a bit. So that does incentivize a rotation out of tech stocks and risk assets and growth and into value. So that raises the question, as foreigners begin to sell their tech stocks that they accumulated after they rotated out of treasuries, what are they gonna be moving their money into? And this is an article from July of 2021, so it's pretty recent. It says, the global economic decoupling from China, or as some call it, reshoring, is not happening. Despite economic and financial tensions and a plethora of foreign restrictions on the transfer of technology to China, China continues to attract record amounts both of foreign direct investment and inflows of portfolio investment into listed onshore Chinese equities and Chinese government bonds. All right, so this is a really cool blog right here. It's from the IMF website, and it was posted on December 16th of 2021. So if we scroll down here, it's got a nice graphic that shows throughout history the direct investment position and who's receiving the most of it. So you can see 2015 US is growing, growing. Most of it's Netherlands, Luxembourg, and then US takes ahead. China's growing pretty fast also. From 2019 to 2020 is where China really picks up the pace of its growth. So if you guys wanna to come to this blog, you can come check this out and watch it go through a couple times to actually see the speed at which these individual countries are actually moving. But I think that does a pretty good job of just showing that the United States has done really well since going into the pandemic, and then China's also picking up speed. But this only goes into 2020 and doesn't show anything after that. So I'm sure the data is quite a bit different in 2022, just considering how drastic everything's been over the last couple of years. But if we come down here, the surge from 2019 to 2020, China showed the largest reported increase in both inward and outward direct investment worldwide. So from 2019 to 2020, China's foreign direct investment actually grew faster than anyone else. And then you can also see down here, 
low-tax jurisdictions such as the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Ireland remain among the top direct investors and investees economies. So I think this really suggests that as the foreigners begin to rotate out of the mega cap U.S. tech stocks, they're actually going to be looking to go where their money's being treated best. People are also recognizing the tensions, the societal problems going on in the world, and they're trying to go to the places that have the most unbiased and fair economies with the low tax jurisdictions. So we did go over the tax rates in our debt problem video, the government debt problem explained. So in that video, we mentioned that we are now paying more in taxes than medieval serfs, and the rich are paying more than medieval slaves, and it's by quite a bit for each of them. So we are currently being taxed at one of the highest rates in all of history, and it's all going to support a government spending problem that doesn't look like it's getting any better. It seems like they're just getting more and more irresponsible with their decisions as time goes forward. So I believe a lot of people are losing trust in the way the economy is structured. And that's why you're seeing people looking for places in the world where they can rely on their money being treated in a fair manner, such as the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Ireland. Although I would argue that Hong Kong is in a different situation today. I don't necessarily find all of these to be very valid at the moment, but I believe it's the concept behind this that really makes a lot of sense and it's something to be paying attention to. All right, so let's move over here and take a look at the chart of M2, which was actually discontinued, but I think it's still worth looking at just to get a visual of the concept that we're talking about. So I mentioned this really all ties back to a sovereign spending problem. And you can see here that this is the M2 chart and it's been going up considerably faster since going into the 2000s. And then around 2020, it just went straight up. So they discontinued the chart, but you can see that this problem is only accelerating. So as we're importing so many products and services, goods and services, and we're exporting the dollars to the rest of the world, they're not gonna be funneling the money back into the United States, whether it be treasuries or equities, which means that our trade deficit is really gonna be a lot more of an outflow. And that's actually gonna be putting a lot of pressure downwards on the dollar, and it's gonna be a pretty strong headwind going forward. And as you can see here, this is the G7 headline inflation. So the G7 average is just under 3%. So these are the seven large, really Western powers, I guess you could call them. But you have US, Canada, Germany, United Kingdom, Italy, France, and Japan. And out of these seven, you can see that Japan actually has deflation and the United States has quite a bit more inflation than the rest of the countries. And the reason why the United States is actually experiencing more inflation, or one of the reasons why, is because of our trade deficit. We're having to print a lot more money to cover the difference to actually be able to afford the goods and services that we have to import from the rest of the world that actually produces the stuff. It also has a lot to do with our entitlement spending, but this video isn't about the entitlement spending. So if you're interested in that, 
I believe it is an extremely important concept to understand. We go over that pretty in depth in our other video that we've been mentioning, the government debt problem explained. So go ahead and check that out because it's definitely worth your time. So really when it comes down to it, the rotation out of tech stocks for foreigners, you have two very strong opposing forces meeting head on and we're gonna have to wait and find out which one of them actually provides a higher magnitude of influence to the economy. So as yields on fixed income products rise, that's really gonna spur a higher demand for dollars. And that's especially the case if the yields are going up at a fast rate. So that is gonna be a strong tailwind for the dollar going forward in the near future. On the other hand, as the yields on fixed income begin to rise, that incentivizes a rotation out of tech stocks, which would mean an outflow out of the United States into emerging markets worldwide, which would increase the supply of dollars in the euro dollar market, which is actually the biggest market of US dollars worldwide. Therefore, as you get the rotation out of tech stocks, that could actually be a pretty strong headwind for the dollar that opposes the tailwinds from the yields. So I think either way you look at it, the yields are going to be a problem for tech stocks specifically. But if you get enough of an outflow from tech stocks into other assets around the world, that could mean that this problem is more centralized to U.S. tech companies rather than risk assets in general. As we've seen, foreigners have been investing more in Chinese companies. So as they sell U.S. tech companies, that could be very bad for U.S. tech companies. But if they rebalance that money into Chinese tech companies, Chinese tech companies could actually do really well. I don't necessarily think that's the best idea, but just for sake of example, you can see how this rotation out of United States tech companies could actually make this a problem that's a lot more sector and asset class specific. So as it relates to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, I believe that this is a very important thing to be watching in the near future. Because as we've seen, we've seen a lot of these emerging market governments starting to consider adding cryptocurrency to their balance sheet. So if a lot of these countries decide that they're sick of being taken advantage of by the US dollar system, and they don't want to own treasuries or tech stocks anymore, maybe they decide that they want to adopt a position in cryptocurrency. So theoretically, we could see a rotation out of tech stocks into cryptocurrency. This would put downward pressure on the dollar as it's an outflow from the United States and the US mega cap tech stocks. Even as yields are rising and groups of people throughout the world may have strong demand for dollars, the aggregate may not. So at the moment, I believe that the yields moving higher are going to create more demand for dollars. But as we get deeper into this problem, we're gonna see a rotation out of these tech stocks and that's gonna be something that really needs to be paid attention to. So for the time being, I think things still probably get worse before they get better, but as they begin to get worse and worse, that's when I believe it's time to start really paying attention. So with that, I think this is a good point to wrap up the video. Also, we wanted to take a quick second and apologize for being a little bit inconsistent with our videos over the last couple weeks. So there's good and bad news regarding that. So the bad news is I've had some pretty serious family health issues over the last couple weeks. So that's been my main focus. 
So I hope you guys understand and I appreciate you guys understanding. So thank you for that. Things are getting better. So I believe that I will be able to be more consistent going forward over the next couple weeks. So should be able to get back to normal. Also, I've been talking with one of my friends that's in finance himself, and he's more of a trader rather than an investor. And I have so much respect for this guy. He puts in a lot of work to solidify his conclusions regarding his trades, and he does a great job of executing on his trades also. He's had a couple really good years recently, and he's really big into cryptocurrency also, along with equities and other markets, but he really does like crypto. So I think he would be a great person to partner with for this channel. So we've been talking about how we can try to bring him on. And I think he's probably going to be taking over our technical analysis videos going forward. So he does a great job with his technical analysis. And he does a great job executing on his technical analysis also. Which is probably more important in my opinion. And he has the track record to back it up. You know, he doesn't just talk the talk. I've seen him walk the walk. And that's why I'm so excited to have him as a potential partner that we're going to be working with here in the near future. So that would allow him to have more time to focus on charts and technicals. And that would give me more time to focus on the macro and that side of things. So while it's not set in stone at the moment, I believe that's the direction that this channel is probably going to be heading towards in the near future. And it's also something that I've been spending quite a bit of my time that I've dedicated to producing this YouTube channel. So I do want to apologize that we have been inconsistent, but I do appreciate your understanding as I've been taking time to take care of my family. And I hope you guys are just as excited as I am to be bringing on this friend of mine that I respect so very much. I really think it's going to add a dimension to this channel that really takes us to the next level as a community. So with that, let's take it to the outro. Alright everyone, thanks for watching. We hope you all found this content valuable. If you did, like this video to let us know so we can continue to put out similar content. If you have any questions or comments, or if you have any suggestions regarding other topics you're focused on and would like to see us cover, just let us know in the comments below. And subscribe to our channel to become a part of the most comprehensive upcoming communities on all of YouTube. This economic environment only comes around once in a lifetime, and we're here to act like it. We're not here to talk you up. We're going to leave our emotions at the door and navigate these markets through the good and the bad. Keep in mind that this is not financial advice. This is more of a mastermind that we can all come together as a community and use each other's unique perspectives to better achieve logical conclusions. We really appreciate all of our team out there watching, and we look forward to continuing conquering these markets with y'all going forward. Until next time, stay one move ahead. Have a great day, everyone.